The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Before we move on from Seth, there was one more topic that I wanted to bring up with regarding how Seth thinks about humans and about Wendigo. His assertion of being like when he's quote unquote bringing George and Louise into his family. We understand from the recording that he made into the Vox tube that he has a specific goal in turning them to begin with there is the implication that they are going to be sent into dc in order to sow chaos cause fear potentially turn more humans into wendigo that he can call back into his family but thinking about this choice he has to know that wendigo are going to die in this assault on DC, because there is a goal that he has in mind, but in attempting to achieve this goal, he is forcing to act like a horde, like foot soldiers, mm. rather than the ambush killers they are. That's This is part of the reason why the Wendigo have been so dangerous in the past, is because they attack from stealth, and even if they attack as a pack, they are able to employ superior tactics in order Mm. to get in, hurt, and then get out again, like moving on the run without anyone being able to shoot them. By sending them into the crowd like this, he is asking them to act against their natural instincts, and that feels like it's an act that shows that they doesn't necessarily value them as individuals. And that, that idea only is heightened when he's got this clinical curiosity about whether this husband and wife are going to retain affection for each other once they are Wendigos. But it's, it's an experiment. He's curious mm. if it will happen. He doesn't actually care if they do. And for all we know, given that that scene is contrasted with the information that Wendigo have descended on Washington, and now Arlington and his family have to secure themselves away from this growing chaos, we don't know if the change Mm -hmm. George and Louise will survive the assault on D.C. I don't feel like it's much of a spoiler to say that we never find out if they do. Mm. So I think that the horror of the encounters with Seth, like where this comes from, is what you were touching on, like, or at least it's part of it. It's not just about being in a room with someone who is capable of killing you. It's that they view this interaction with you 
as a fleeting curiosity. The outcome will likely be your death, but Seth seems to be looking for some sort of answers. And while it doesn't necessarily feel like a situation where if you're able to provide the right sort of answer or say what he wants to hear, he'll let you live. There is the possibility of that. But to be honest, doesn't that just make the situation all the more unnerving? You're standing on perpetually unstable ground when you interact with Seth. What is he? What does he want? Can he be reasoned with? Will he let you live if you just say the right thing? Or is your death predetermined? How does he view the Wendigos? As family who he values? Or as a means or resource to expend to achieve his goals? What, in his mind, is he turning you into? The fact that he provides hints to all of those questions, but rarely fully confirms any of them, makes him deeply unsettling. In a book about a collection of people trying to find answers, solutions, Seth represents absolute uncertainty mm. and a separate faction that has both power over humanity and an assurance and a focus that the human population evidently lacks. Two things come to mind in regards to the things that you just said. First of all, in settings where monsters like vampires are afraid of humanity, mm-hmm. it's because they're afraid of the superior numbers and resources that they can muster if they realize that vampires exist and are able to gather together as one in order to destroy them. And that's why things like the masquerade exists in the White Wolf games and everything like that, where vampires are people of power, but they still try to hide their existence from humans because they're worried if they are revealed then humanity will come down on them and basically bring another inquisition in terms of a a whole bunch of them devoting every ounce of energy to wiping them off the face of the earth. Seth, in that way, is coming in at a very beneficial time for him because not only does he seem to have all the superior powers that a supernatural creature like a vampire would have he also doesn't seem to have any of their standard weaknesses like say not being able to go out in daylight and Mm. given everything else that's going on and the fact that humanity's numbers have dwindled and that they have such a hard time agreeing to even do things that are necessary for their survival this is a prime opportunity for seth to do whatever he wants Mm. unlike the modern stories that Vampire the Masquerade is built in and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the second thing that I want to bring up is Mm -hmm. in regards to the, the difficult place that he's able to put Annie and George and Louise into, it reminded me of a conversation from a movie called Suspect Zero. I don't know that it was a particularly good movie, At time of writing, it has 18% freshness on Rotten Tomatoes, a score of 37 on Metacritic, and Roger Ebert said that the film was too confusing to follow. In his words, there's no use paying attention. 
since we won't be able to figure out the film's secrets until they're explained to us. I can't remember now why I chose to watch this movie, other than the fact that I got it back in the days when I was living alone in my second self-financed apartment. It was available in the days when Netflix mailed DVDs to your home, and I might have been intrigued in seeing more stuff with Carrie Ann Moss in it after Memento and The Matrix. The vibe of it was in some ways a less impressive version of Seven, with the side benefit of no Kevin Spacey. But some of the performance by Ben Kingsley clearly stuck with me, as I remember one of the scenes to this day. There's a conversation at one point where Ben Kingsley's character, when we don't know if he's a bad guy or not, is commenting on how serial killers will often toy with their prey and make them think that if they can just say or do the right thing, then mm. this person that has ultimate control over whether they will live or not will let them live. But the serial killer knows all along that there is no right answer and they will come to whatever end he wants them to. There is no placating him. I include the following clip from said movie, which is in itself not a spoiler, though the described imagery may be troubling. So if you are sensitive to such things, then I recommend skipping ahead one minute and 20 seconds, starting from here. Are you afraid? Because from here at this point, stop praying. I see a lot of that. Haven't heard too many answers, though. You're alone. Are you afraid? Where's the boy? My, my! Must be extremely satisfying to hear yourself say something so heroic. I'm almost envious. The boy's in pieces under the bed. Are you afraid? I know what you're thinking. Pain is coming. But I take it like a man. Well, let me put you at ease. You won't. Then none of them do. Men, women, children, they all weep, they all beg, they pass out, they piss themselves. They attempt negotiation, you wouldn't believe how many men I've seen lying right where you're lying right now. Grown men with wives and children at home offering all kinds of sexual gratification for a five-minute reprieve. It's pathetic. Are you afraid? And at that moment when they realize there's nothing left to negotiate, they're just mine and they're helpless. And look, the look in their eyes, the level of surrender, it's almost pornographic. I put that mirror here. So I didn't want you to miss it. Are you afraid? The fear, in fact, is what the killer enjoys. It's like a perversion of what allows audiences to enjoy the fear in a horror movie because it comes while in a safe space and is then released. Seth may, of course, view this moment differently. He acts cultured with his mention of Shakespeare. He claims he is releasing them, transforming them, rather than killing them. But the simple truth is this. If George and Louise do, in fact, not remember who they were, who they are, then they are dead. Death of memory is tied to death of the self. And in those final moments when George and Louise transform, and Seth is wrapped up in speaking the words of much ado about nothing to his own ends, here we see his release. It feels like Seth is a serial killer with some extra steps added. I don't want to get too far in the direction of serial Jesus. killers, but yeah. just that conversation, mm -hmm. it 
that's what comes to mind when I yeah. think about, uh, you know, it's, so, the, so the fact that he chooses to let Annie go at all mm. is, first of all, we're happy from a narrative standpoint that he does. Mm. Maybe there is even uh, a tactical thing in mind in terms of letting her report back to the powers that be with what she knows that serves his goals, but it was in some ways potentially purely on a whim. He mm. had all of the power and this could have been the end of her story. Yeah. And I think that's what you get all the while. It, just the way he dismantles the human weapons that they mm. bring to the situation is that he has all of the power in this situation. Okay. I need Seth, to stop everybody. talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I need to stop talking about him because uh, we've got plenty of other things to discuss at this point that mm. are of equal darkness and frustration. There is a reason why we have referred to these three chapters as being the descent portion of the story. Mm -hmm. Let's talk some more about the other characters in these chapters. Mm -hmm. Raven, the way he is presented in chapter 18 is very emblematic of the very first spider Jerusalem arc from Transmetropolitan, where he's on top of a roof and seeing historical events play out and writing about them on his typewriter. Uh, there was a riot there too, as well as police violence and assault on minorities. Raven is far less foul-mouthed than either the man that Spider-Jerusalem is based on, Hunter mm. S. Thompson, or Spider-Jerusalem himself. And on top of that, while personal opinion cannot avoid being a part of Raven's writing, the way he writes comes across as very factual. A shade or two from clinical, with only brief moments of emotion creeping in. He is a mostly dispassionate observer, like, say, Huatu the Watcher, which is fascinating, considering uh, that uh, What If has come out now, and he is the narrator for these alternate universes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. But he is seeing... The breakdown of events and the fall into chaos. And he comments, even if he wanted to, there is nothing he could do to mm. affect what's going on. I think it's important that we are introduced to Raven ahead of this and we know who he is so that when he plays this part of the sort of dispassionate observer where fleeting glimpses of his feelings on the matter come in from the sides because if this was our first impression we wouldn't necessarily be able to know what kind of man he is because raven's abilities as a journalist they've been made apparent before this scene but this really shows off why his presence should be valued as you said he relays this information with a precision and comprehensiveness that reveals how seriously he takes his duty as a reporter. Mm. These events are hard to stomach, but they need to be recorded and observed. And Raven provides that with a diligence. It's an approach that... It's an approach that makes a series of events that he's describing feel that much more real, as if this was a report on a 
horrendous incidents that you get flashes of in breaking news, it allows the somber nature of the sequence of events to speak for themselves, following it up with the intensely mournful rendition of Star Spangled Banner by Chase Holfelder makes the scene an echoing, haunting indication <laughs> of the broken reality of the US, which has only become more savouring in the intervening years between Arlington's publication and us revisiting it now. Yeah, this isn't the only time that Alex is going to use an alternate version of songs that are meant to be emblematic of the greatness of America. These versions are more mournful rather than Mm -hmm. patriotic and inspiring. So Mm -hmm. well done for uh, bringing attention to that. It is not a uncommon thing to do to like accentuate the disparity between the glimmering ideal of what America can and ought to be and the like gritty reality mm-hmm. of things you know just the other example like of I have to imagine thousands of different moments evoked in media that use this kind of step is the main menu to spec ops the line mm. having uh, I believe it's the Jimi Hendrix uh, version of Star Spangled Banner but uh, playing. But as you revisit that main menu, depending on what state of the story you're at, it is more and more distorted and mm-hmm. kind of crackling, or it's at different moments of the song that feel like it's sort of reaching some sort of culmination. And then once you're near the end point of the game it's entirely absent and it's just the faded husk of a flag is left on screen. It's And isn't it upside down as well? It like is that, also upside down, yeah. Which which is the symbol of distress. Hang, mm. hang it's meant to be a form of flag communication. If you hang your flag upside down, that's meant to be a distress call. Does that not make it rather confusing for certain flags which would look the same whether Upside down. I'm just thinking well, of like I, 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 the I'm, British I'm thinking, flag. Or yeah, is this th- like a specific, specifically an American? As it turns out, it's not only notched a U.S. thing. It was originally used at sea by certain nationalities to indicate their ship had been taken by hostile forces. Hanging the flag upside down has also been used as a form of protest. In 2020, it was co-opted by activists in protest of police brutality. And in 2021, it was used by unhappy Trump chodes protesting Biden coming into office. But we've gotten off track. Let's get back to the story at hand. What were we talking about again? Oh, right. The music in Chapter 18. Hearing uh, the cover of this by uh, Chase Holfelder, or the performance of it, it just really has that sort of echoing quality to it, which makes... Mm the scenes and images like it that I think we are all familiar with at this stage, just sharply clear in our mind's eye, which Mm. is a very difficult place to sit in, but has unfortunately been the place we have been sitting in for far longer than any of us have ever even known the words COVID-19. It is not a product of the last two years, and it is not even a product of the last five years. 
Yeah, when I was a child, I could have been argued to be patriotic, but as I am now an adult, I have learned to put away childish things, as they say. Um, but, okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. We, uh, <laughs> wow. Man, yeah. I'm really... I'm. I'm really happy that we opened this recording session with the fluff piece of my marriage, you know. Like, yeah, <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to bring up, only, partly because it's specifically been relevant on the Discord, is mm -hmm. the idea of putting out classic songs that are a little bit peppier and more exciting, putting them into a minor key and singing them slower and more sadly or more dourly or more gothy that has been mm. a growing trend in movies and trailers in particular recently and that's part of the reason why when i was uh putting together the most recent episodes for the outro i picked the lord version of everybody wants to rule the mm. world um yeah. that was specifically as i mentioned at the time for one of the uh hunger games movies it's a, it's a sharp contrast to the 80s, very poppy version of that song done by new wave band Tears for Fears back in the 80s. Mm. So our discussion of this version of Star Spangled Banner, as well as another song that will come towards the end of our, our discussion of Arlington, is a little bit reflective of this idea. Mm. It's, it's the same reason why in horror, when you hear like a sort of creepy like nursery rhyme or like children's mm. like song that like it's the same reasoning for why that like gets to because it's the warping of something that is pre-established to fit a certain mood or mm -hmm. time of your life or environment and when you do something to the fundamental like bones of the song to make it completely unrecognizable to what it once was it means that you're making it like sort of unsettling i think my one of my favorite examples of it was that initial trailer for uh, age of ultron which mm. uh, they even actually worked into the film itself where it's just the little invocations of Pinocchio's, I've mm. got no strings to hold me down on top of all of that, Marvel Studios has been bought by Disney at this point, so there was a dramatic, twisted irony in them using that particular song. I mean, I remember the How It Should Have Ended parody after that like, trailer came out, and it's just Ultron get, like, saying, like, Do you want to build a snowman? Like, just, <laughs> and, like, you've got a friend in me. And just him, like, cycling through and doing creepy, uh... like, like, all these different Disney songs. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, getting back to... Arlington, brighter, yes. Arlington yeah. things? Brighter things? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, there isn't a lot of bright to be had in these chapters, unfortunately. Mm. The brightest stuff was the stuff that we already covered, where we got mm. to see Carl and Annie having fun conversations and him being a little bit of a dick. You're right. You're like... right, Greg. The <laughs> best part of these chapters was the part where we established a warmth and love that was shredded away from us and torn from us. Uh, okay, okay. Keep going, back, keep going. Back. All right. Um, 
Tops. I'm actually enjoying myself a lot. I'm actually okay. enjoying my, this a lot. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I keep going. Thomas in these chapters, we're seeing some of the fallout, not only from previous moments in the book, but specifically the events of chapter 16 with everything that happened with Roach and the loss of Lawton Sadler. Roach has clearly gotten under his skin, but also this moment of vulnerability was witnessed by Butler. And Butler has been brought into the fold, so to speak. Mm. But I feel like the fact that he was present feels a little bit different than if it had just been Agent Lee that was there. Lee is more of a loyal soldier and probably wouldn't pry. But I think Thomas knows that Butler is insanely curious and wants to know what's going on, even if he is diplomatic enough not to ask right now. Mm. Uh, uh, Lee is a sort of like silent, pre-existing confidant, like mm. whereas Frank is very sort of amiable and talkative, mm-hmm. and is a very new ally to Thomas. So yeah, the the, see, the bonds haven't completely finished forging yet. Mm. So to for him to be present at a moment of absolute like vulnerability is a disarming thing for them both, I think. Yeah. This bond that had been forming is there mm. is now a tension that is resting on a knife's edge. And mm. Thomas is trying to contain all of this chaos inside himself, which understandably makes him reach out to Frederick Douglass as a potential source of stability. A man mm. he feels he can count on to counteract the frustration he feels for not being able to find the kind of man that he wants to elevate to the executive branch. And it is the chaos inside of him that also causes him to push when Douglas doesn't give him the answer that he needs to hear at this point. Thomas is coming to Frederick Douglas to simultaneously seek reassurance from a figure of inspiration in his life after everything with Roach has made him question his own ethics and code of conduct because he had to take a questionable action Mm. when he was put on the spot like that. And he's also doing this as well to take action to regain some control after being destabilized by Roach's visit, intending to like shake the tree as much as is required to get Douglas to do what Thomas desperately wants him to do to assuage his growing concerns for the nation and just the state of things. That tension and escalating frustration leads Thomas to stepping out of line by invoking Douglas's wife and chastising Douglas for letting it get in the way of him doing what uh, Thomas considers the right thing. It's a great choice that this is the next scene to see Thomas in after everything with Roach, because it feels like what Thomas needs is to rally. And he's trying to do that by recruiting who he considers to be the best man for the job. But Douglas's principles end up running counter to Thomas's conclusions. And that's a compelling challenge to see Thomas go through. We've seen him be frustrated by the obtuse and by the ignorant and the malicious. 
to see him encounter a roadblock from the man he most respects and after his cage has been rattled by someone who appears to induce the very worst flavor in thomas's mouth well that's almost as hard as it gets and it's no wonder why some of the nettles come out when thomas steps out of line with douglas it's excellent character drama i think it's already been established at this point even how affected thomas arlington was by seeing frederick douglas in a position of power during that scene Mm. in uh the cartographer's handbook there is Mm. definitely the implication in all of this that thomas considers maybe not directly but certainly in ideology and representation he considers frederick douglas to be a mentor figure 100 percent. yeah and so therefore the idea of his mentor failing him at a crucial moment Mm. is definitely what encourages him to push back Mm. which is the wrong thing obviously but at the very least things don't entirely collapse. There is a moment of tension Mm. and it feels like something good at least could come out of it Mm. right up to the moment that something else happens being Mm. the riot and then the attack of the Wendigo Mm. to ruin whatever positive momentum might have come from that interaction. Mm. Now, now they're all running for their lives and, Mm. uh, you know, we'll just have to see how that continues to play out in the following mm. chapters. Mm-hmm. But to talk a little bit about the man himself, mm-hmm. and, and Frederick Douglass was, it, it's kind of hard to be Condense aware. all of Frederick Douglass into this segment of our show. Yeah, exactly. Because he is important, but the story is obviously not about him. But mm. I've seen lots of representations of him either as being a background character or a voiced character in a number of different movies throughout my adult life. And Mm. therefore, having this moment to see him actually not only make a speech to a bunch of people, but to have interactions with Thomas on a human-to-human personal level, it's just kind of brilliantly acted. Mm. Not well written, but then acted out for the audio drama. He presents the audience with a monologue, like all speechmakers do. Mm. One could even take a look at many opportunities where that sort of thing happens in the West Wing. Put a penny in the jar. (laughs) But different from the earlier scene where Grant is doing a monologue to his staff, or Thomas is doing a speech to the white scarves, to the troops, or mm-hmm. even Raven's writings, which have a, a, a quality of monologue in them as well. This just carries more gravitas and weight to it, not just because of his discussion on a subject that makes me think a lot about our own recent history, but because this is a man with the weight of history himself. Mm-hmm. As mentioned, this is a potent inspiration for Alex's creation of Thomas Arlington. And again, as we said just a moment ago, in universe, Thomas himself considers this black activist to be the kind of leader and role model that likely put the fire inside of him 
to achieve like Douglas did. But at the same time, the contrast between the two of them is there seems to be a calmness inside Douglas that Thomas himself seems to lack, mm. contrasting the two men as they come into conflict. Frederick Douglass is well-positioned for his role here as a mentor to Thomas. In our world, Frederick Douglass lived until 1895 and was active right until the day he died, having attended a meeting of the National Council of Women in Washington, D.C. earlier that day. With Arlington taking place in 1883, it is around a key turning point in his life as his first wife, Anna Marie Douglas, passed away in 1882 in our world. So Thomas invoking her loss is not only on the money as something that would still have stung Frederick, but it is really out of line for him to have brought her up at this time. What I mean by bringing all of this up is that as an impressive, inspiring man who was still active and could still feasibly be nominated for vice president, and he was a vice presidential nominee in 1872 in our world as well, mm-hmm. but he is also old enough that he would be hesitant and not be rushing, champing at the bit to give Thomas the reassurance that he's hoping for. Frederick Douglass fits this role as a mentor perfectly mm-hmm. at a moment when Thomas desperately needs one, but he can't necessarily get the easy answers he's looking for from his mentor. He has to find them for himself. Mm. And as someone set aside or indeed against Thomas, Frederick Douglass is a compelling figure to consider. Frederick Douglass is a legendary historical orator, and Thomas's abilities as a speaker are similarly impressive. While we haven't sort of, he's addressed the white scarves, but he hasn't necessarily addressed publicly because it feels like he's afraid of the public. What we have heard from him is his address to the public in the cartographer's handbook. So we have heard him as a sort of written speaker. And he's done plenty of, not necessarily oratory in particular, mm, but the mm. way he communicates, at least on a one-on-one basis, to some of the important people in New Century itself shows us that he's very good at making a point and mm. even using humor at times uh, in order to... Uh, Ingratiate himself? A little bit, yeah. Not quite yeah. the same way that other people can, but my point is is that he's got he's got a pretty good toolkit when it comes to mm. being able to express himself. He still doesn't have the same weight as Douglas himself. Part of that is a little bit of the gravitas and calmness that I referred to earlier, which Mm. I I can't necessarily speak to where that comes from, but it's, it's present in every depiction of Douglas Mm. that I've ever seen. And Mm. Alex uses it to good effect in Arlington in particular. I think that there is like, while there are differences, they are, they both exhibit, impressive abilities as speakers so where i feel like some of the differences arise are in douglas's belief in dialogue now i don't mean to suggest that thomas is against dialogue and communication that's more or less what he does on a daily basis as you mentioned a moment ago greg and the handbook absolutely advocates settling disputes non-violently if possible 
But something Douglas was criticized for by some abolitionists at the time when while he was alive was his willingness to engage in dialogue with slave owners. Frederick Douglass's response to this criticism was, and I believe this is a quotation, I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. This willingness to sit down with the people responsible for what Douglas would have wanted to change and work out a solution with them is not something I can necessarily say Thomas would wholeheartedly share. We've discussed his stance that he expressed in the handbook and his firm resolve to not compromise with secessionists and the anger we have heard about and seen in him. This is something that I believe Frederick and Thomas would differ on. Yeah, but you can also understand Thomas's perspective in this. 100%. Especially, especially when you take into consideration, again, recent events that in mm. theory you want to believe that anybody can be convinced of the right thing. Yes. And what mm. we have seen again and again is that there are people that will be too selfish mm. or too bigoted or mm. even just too indoctrinated by yes. the wrong people that they will never be able to admit mm. the rightness of somebody else's argument. This this is the reverse of the Captain America quote. Well, they will stand and st say, no, the, the vaccine is going to implant a, uh, a microchip in my, in my head, regardless mm. of anybody's logical argument that this is a ridiculous idea. The conversation in regards to the content of the Captain America speech from the Civil War comic that made its way into the MCU movie crops up every now and then on social media as it has been co-opted as an alt-right and even QAnon talking point. It's ridiculous enough that even though Captain America has been almost always depicted as left-leaning in his beliefs, there are right-wing commentators that claim it's the other way around, and Steve Rogers has become too quote-unquote woke in recent years. But because that conversation was in the Fireside Alliance Discord recently, I wanted to add a reply from Sharon Shaw on the subject. Responding directly to the text of the original speech in the comic, Sharon said, Small point, but if you plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth, and the things you think are right are, in fact, bollocks, then eventually the river of truth will undercut the bank your misguided-ass roots are sitting in, and you, my dear, are going face-first into it. It's not that like I necessarily believe that Thomas is wrong to defer or mm. to be different to Douglas on this specific matter because as you've said in a modern context there are people for whom like dialogue is not only fruitless but almost like regressive they will try and weaponize having mm. a conversation against you this exactly. is some some of the things that debate me yeah <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And there, are, I, I know that uh, Alex has gone on to see several of these YouTube videos now, but there is a whole slew of videos specifically by one Ian Danskin, uh, who lives actually in the same state as I do, who has published a series of videos on the alt-right playbook and how they will be like, yes, 
let's have a conversation, but now I'm going to use all of your tactics against you in order to help stymie the goals that you want and bring more people over to my side. So sometimes, sometimes talking is not the solution, unfortunately. And that dovetails neatly with uh, the final topics on our agenda on some of the politics. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. We're going to be talking about politics on this very political podcast. Politics in a Washington thriller. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah, sign exactly. up for this. But, but there is definitely something new that I learned from taking some of the elements from this book and digging a little bit deeper into the actual history. There is a character that is brought up in chapter 18 as being one of the people that Sarah talked with about, quote-unquote, being vice president. That was a member of the Know Nothing political party. Uh, this Stillwell is espousing a wall to keep out the Wendigo, someone we associate with another abominable populist-seeming politician. So, sadly, even more relevant now. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know anything about the Know Nothings as a political party. Yes, the irony is writ large there. Mm -hmm. So when I went to learn more about them, what I found out just from a good half hour of Wikipedia and everything like that feels fairly chilling in mm -hmm. hindsight. This political party was actually built upon the framework of a secret society that blossomed That's into... Yeah, exactly. It blossomed into a political party that was selling itself as an alternative to the Democrats. And by the Democrats, I say the politicians that would later rebrand themselves as the GOP, not what we know as Democrats in the modern world. The know-nothings were asserting a conspiracy to subvert civil and religious liberty. They were xenophobic <sighs> and nationalist. And it's hard not to see parallels between them and the recent rise of QAnon and the yeah, politicians and the politicians that align themselves with QAnon. You know, so this entire conversation with Sarah about the fact that Stillwell might have been put on the list by the White House, not because he was ever a serious candidate, but merely because say, Conrad or somebody else was suggesting that they take a meeting with this person so that they're aware of this individual as a potential future political threat. Mm. There, that feels shockingly prescient, especially since at time of writing, QAnon did not exist. So this is just kind of like really disturbingly relevant now. We've said it before and we'll say it again. No one wants this to be relevant. We want this to book to age. Like if yeah. any book in this uh, like series can age, dear God, could it be this one, please. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, it's the equivalent of commiserations or that drinking partner at the bar. And it's just like, uh, yep. Yeah, 
at least someone else here is uh, like drinking their sorrows or something like that. And I mean, I don't have much to add, which you haven't already covered and expressed so successfully just then. I think that the emergence of far-right groups who use outlandish proclamations of imagined conspiracies to sow a feeling of the world is out is out of step and we're the ones who know how it should be and any effort from people telling you you're being ridiculous at best and extremely harmful at worst are all part of that conspiracy so you can't trust a single word coming out of their mouths do not listen to their words all of that is the product of the most regressive and vitriolic parts of ourselves that have stayed unchecked for far too long because it wasn't a priority or it wasn't deemed a serious threat, while all the while it festered in parent closed system paranoia and willful ignorance and grew in weight and size until it shifting its weight around and inflicting itself upon the rest of us ruined lives. The setting of Arlington has a government trying to keep the lights on in the apocalypse and just finding enough room and food for people to survive and repair and heal after collective grief. And yet, even as your attention is directed on the, to this essential self-care, people generate and spread more hurt. And it doesn't stop. And it's exhausting. Fuck. Yeah. There was something that someone posted recently on Facebook that I, mm-hmm. I got a chance to see a little bit of. It was basically a, um, a segment on The Daily Show. The, the new Daily Show with Trevor Noah, which I have not seen much of ever since mm-hmm. Jon Stewart stepped down. But it was basically someone that had been going to a lot of these Trump rallies... Mm-hmm. And therefore trying to, quote unquote, engage with them, having a discourse and doing his best to just follow them down the routes of their brains. And just by going with them and repeating their talking points back to them, trying to incline to show them how ridiculous some of their arguments actually are to say aloud, to reframe in different words. It's hard to believe that any of this will ever be anything but theater for right-thinking people to say, like, yes, these people are ridiculous. It's comedy and it's political comedy, but it doesn't feel like it's going to change anyone's minds. As part of the conversation we were just having a moment ago about Mm -hmm. trying to open a dialogue with these people, but nothing will ever get through to some of them. In some ways, I wonder if The Daily Show can be considered a vestigial remnant of the Bush and Obama era, making comedic theater of the right while providing a counter-narrative accessible to moderates and the left-wing. But in the age of Trump and post-Trump, I can't be sure if it serves a useful purpose anymore, if it just distracts and diffuses during a time when what we need is action. John Oliver's Last Week Tonight has shown itself to be more aggressive in regards to social and political activism, but the realness of that show has made it almost too hard for me to watch in more recent years. I can't and I won't come down hard on The Daily Show, since 
I don't have the proper recent experience and context to say one way or another on the subject. I'm only saying how I feel. And like Toby, what I feel is exhausting. If there is a way to get through to some of them, then the ways that we are doing it right now aren't going to be those ways. And Mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out how to do that, if it's all possible. But in the meantime, it still feels like we need to focus less on reaching a hand across and just doing our best to mitigate the damage, to damage control the very real harm that these people are causing by continuing to vote for these people in office, by continuing to not mask to not vaccinate. Fuck, I don't even want to talk about the last point on our list here. I'm already so fucking depressed by all of this. We can let, do it, let, man. We yeah, uh, let, like we have a duty to these books. Yeah, Arlington, exactly. we knew we knew what we were getting into. Like yeah. we're, we're Annie and Carl like just marching forward. We can do yeah. it. Okay, all right, all right. Last point, let's just get this done and then Maybe I'll come up with something humorous to say at the end, or maybe mm. I'll come up with uh, an editorial comment uh, mm. to dispel this. But okay, politics of white supremacy, as they are presented in these chapters. In general, I don't feel like I have much to say on the subject of white supremacy that hasn't already been said better by other activist voices or even by the speech of Douglas himself. Mm -mm. But the one thing that stands out that bears consideration is that there is a warning in Douglas's speech that one could apply to Thomas. Mm -hmm. Douglas uses the line, It is a dangerous thing to consider oneself wholly morally correct and possessed of unimpeachable judgment. The part of the speech that this line comes from has strong echoes of the Civil War speech we mentioned earlier, and I already commented on how alt-right forces have tried to use this speech in support of their beliefs. But Douglas's next words are what lend greater context to shore up the proper purpose of the speech. The tyranny of men resides not in their social position, but in their manifest mistreatment of those they consider lesser beings. If they lay a hand on you, attempt to make you feel you are lowly, you snatch that hand away with absolute certainty. For the freedom of all men from tyranny is a moral right. It doesn't change the fact that people making the decisions should not only be myriad, but should also be the right kind of people. And here, once more, the thought of Hamartia comes to mind. As Thomas is so focused on seeing to it that Douglas hears him, he doesn't necessarily see that maybe he should listen to Douglas as well. He is so focused on the goal that he is trying to achieve that this moment in Douglas' speech completely goes over his head. It's it's that equivalent of uh, the classic Greek tragic hero mm. well, being unable to hear yeah. the chorus, like literally announcing <laughs> what your problem is and why it's going to lead to tragedy. And mm. we 
shan't delve too much into that but what we can go over is what we have already gone over in that thomas's fatal flaw absolute control by someone with unflinching certainty in the rightness of their goals and ambitions is one that we oddly enough do empathize with so much across arlington because the circumstances he's placed in suggest that this flaw might actually be entirely necessary he has to be decisive because lives are on the line and humanity doesn't have the breathing space to take the moderate approach and in the face of human cruelty incompetence and indecisiveness surely thomas's outlook is the virtuous one by comparison to all of the harmful actors on the washington stage when the judgment of those around us is so categorically reprehensible does that mean that our own judgment is automatically unimpeachable just because of what we have to compare it to? Considering what we have seen, are we really sure we can disagree with Thomas or for feeling the way he does about the situation he is in? We need a man like Frederick Douglass to offer his stance on things because we require the judgment of a virtuous man as an antidote to the ill will of the irreprehensible, and that is when clarity can be achieved. Not just a virtuous man, but one capable of humility. Mm. And honestly, that humility is a more than a little bit on display during that confrontation between Thomas and Frederick, where even though... Frederick is in his right to respond with anger for Thomas's presumption. He is able to see it within himself in order to see things from Thomas's point of view and be willing to not have this be the end of the conversation. Mm. And humility is something that I don't know we see enough of in Thomas's makeup so far. Earlier, I comment on how Seth sees himself and point out again and again that his actions contradict his position. Here, we have to turn a critical eye to Thomas himself and once more ask if he really listens to others as much as he says he wants to. And by listens, I mean in the broader sense that he concedes someone else might see a situation more clearly than he does, that those he considers his friends and allies might have a better idea than he does. Granted, if you are too open-minded, too empathetic, then it can go too far in the other direction, and you can doubt yourself and your convictions to your detriment. I speak from personal experience in this regard. It's not enough that Thomas looks to Sarah to be his guide in matters of compromise, especially when he's shown that he can discount her thoughts as well, during moments of peak stress. Keep that in mind, ruminate on it, as we continue our journey through the final chapters of Arlington. On top of that, once more, I it feel that it's coming back, as it always does, to a moment in the West Wing. Put a penny, Put in, a the penny jar. in the jar. <laughs> uh, there is a moment at the end of season three where... People in authority are trying to encourage 
President Bartlett to do a very morally gray or even black thing as something that they consider essential to protecting America. And his best friend, his chief of staff, says, This is the most horrifying part of your liberalism. You think there are moral absolutes. There are moral absolutes. Apparently not. He's killed innocent people. He'll kill more, so we have to end him. I don't necessarily want to spoil this because even though it might be difficult right now, especially, I still think that the West Wing is worth watching and taking in. So, you know, I don't want to be the person that uh, is spoiling it for those that don't want to be spoiled. But what he is being asked to do in this moment does feel difficult. It is something that I can see the argument for, but I, I'm not sure I would feel like I could make that decision either. Mm. And it doesn't even have to do with whether or not there are moral absolutes or not. It does feel like it is dangerous to go too far to either side of the equation to either say that everything is relative or that nothing is relative, that things are black and white. Once more, when we say that things are gray, you need to take things are gray in moderation as well. It's mm. all about, as I love to say, and is always relevant, it's all about the context. Mm. And the context is important when it comes to making decisions that you can live with, or more accurately, making decisions that are going to have long-lasting ramifications, such as those made in representing others, whether it's your family, your friends, your company, or your country. My mind is going back to our conversation that we had at the beginning of our last recording session about how you can find truths along the course of your life and they will be true for you for a time, but they won't always be true for you. Mm. And people will often try to find some sort of universal truth, some thing that they can apply to all of the areas of their life to make it easier to deal with it. Yeah. And that's a very understandable reaction to the chaos of life and the world. But, but it's, it it's is also a, a bit of a trap. It is a trap because there is no tool that fits for every job that there is. Mm -hmm. And it means you have to find different truths and keep questioning what the appropriate truth is for the situation you find yourself in. And as has been a truth that like, has been often expressed by Alex, We've referred to it, I think, ourselves in the past. I think the only truth I've heard, or one of the few truths I've heard that really can, like, that is worth bearing in mind in response to the chaos is, it's chaos, be kind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, there are a few more fundamental truths that I find as ethical as that. So thank you for bringing that up. You know what? That's that that's great. I don't I don't think I don't think we can end this any better way. You mm. you you've done it, Toby. You have there we go. <laughs> you have been the Captain America to my Tony Stark, 
and found exactly the right thing to say to end this on some level of hope and positivity. Well, that's the end of our discussion of The Descent. Mm -hmm. So next time we'll be recording, we'll be covering chapters 20, 21, and 22, which is the rally that Thomas Arlington was so desperately hoping for in his conversations with Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we'll see you on another trip through the window. Take care. There's an odd sort of poetic irony in the fact that over a year ago, I decided that I was the Tony Stark of this podcast and Toby is the Steve Rogers. Unlike either version of Civil War, we have never come into conflict, even when I allow my cynicism to override my kindness, and I need him to bring me back to equilibrium. I do not have the same anger as Thomas Arlington, that is not to say I have no anger. I also don't have the same privilege and means as Tony Stark, and in some ways that is a relief. They say that power corrupts, but as I've mentioned before, I agree with those that say power reveals. And I sometimes worry what would be revealed if I was given power. Thankfully, the power that Tony has to make weapons of war and homicidal AIs is not a concern that I have to contend with. But I do know that I would listen to people like Toby and Maureen if they thought that I needed to be reined in. If you're of a mind, then there's a whole lot of socializing with Toby and his new wife Sarah after the jump of the outro. But to close us out today, one of Alex's favorite artists, singing a song written about the Fallout video game setting. Until next time, this is Gavin Dunn, a.k.a. The Miracle of Sound, with Some Things Never Change.
The following excerpts have been edited for time, content, and certain details that I have deemed more private. We begin not quite at the beginning, but on a fascinating detail on one of the more unexpected expenditures of an English wedding, umbrellas. I didn't see a single one of those goddamn umbrellas <laughs> back. I, like, not even my own one that, that I brought, but... Reason that, why that was the reason why that like yeah the, if that was the money that I burned at the <laughs> altar of pagan <laughs> rainfall then I accept that the the, the payment that was done <laughs> like this contract was binding and it meant that we actually had an all right time it rained on us as we were going into the church and but then we had the rest of the day was rest perfect. of the day was fine in fact there was a bit where we uh, Actually, after like having dinner, we uh, sorted off for a bit, and it was just the two of us getting pictures around the college because we were very lucky to actually be able to get married in like an Oxford University like college and stuff, which is great. It's where we used to live, <laughs> so you know, at one point it was just like where we like went out. <laughs> you know that picture that I've? It might even still be my profile thing oh, on Skype yeah. of me. And it's very blue and there's snow and everything like that. Yes, yes, that is your picture. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the spot where we got married. Um, oh, so, wow. Okay, fascinating. And and we got loads of pictures. But there was even a moment where we, like, we got a picture because this was, like, at the halls of residence yeah. and everything. There's a tennis court. <laughs> and Sarah's very into tennis. We actually watched Wim Wimbledon this year. Wimbledon. Oh, okay. Like I, I was actually picking up yeah, the rules yeah. and it's like, oh, wow, I've never been into tennis when it wasn't depicted by Mario characters. <laughs> um, so I actually really Sarah, enjoyed Sarah, it. Sarah, if, if Toby asks you to dress up like tennis princess Peach, you're, you're going to warn me, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't get <laughs> I'm so glad that we're being recorded, <laughs> and this definitely won't be an outtake. But, um, so 
so hold on a second before you continue on. You said it, it it rained as you were going in, and it didn't rain as you were going out. Have either of you, because it came up recently, have you, have either of you watched About Time yet? The movie? No, this I've I've listened to Alex's show on it. This is a romantic comedy film, a British uh, romantic comedy film about like time travel and. No, uh, I think I was going to see that. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it, oh. if, from the sounds of it, it looks very good mm. in like very sort of bittersweet in places anyway well, it's, it's obviously complicated but the reason <laughs> the reason i bring this up is because if it's a very if it's a br- very british movie then listening to you talk about your experience the wedding and knowing giving umbrellas back when the wedding happens in the movie this is not much of a spoiler it's going to be hilarious just to watch it play out when the wedding happens in the movie and everybody's coming out of the church. They're coming out into a fucking monsoon. <laughs> and the reception that they're going to is under tents. <laughs> so they're literally going from, like, you know, a fully enclosed church to mm. a wedding reception out in this monsoon. And one yep. of the tents fails and there's oh, water over everybody. <laughs> Brilliant. That was on the cards at one point. Well, that, but it didn't like, that happen. happened to us on the dinner on the Thursday. Oh, we... God. Yeah, that actually did. Like, first time our parents are meeting, like, face to face. They've actually, like, even though we had been going out for about seven years at this point, yeah, they just never had the chance to actually, like, you know, they would never be available yeah. at the same time. But like with the wedding coming up, we like they started being in communication mm-hmm. with one another. And now they're uh, very firm friends, which is nice to see. Uh, no in-law rivalries uh, to be settled on the tennis court or anything like that. Let's fast forward to the relevant moment, which was when we were going out for a nice meal uh, with us and our maid of honor yeah. as well. And... The actual amount of time we were outside was the four to five second window between getting out of the taxi and getting into the restaurant. But like this, they had done something which I believe is referred to as cloudburst, where it's just basically like, okay, we need to terraform this son of a bitch, put in some rivers like right now. Like that that level of rainfall. And in the four seconds that like we were outside with that, we were drenched, soaked, <laughs> besogged. Particularly Toby because he was being the gent trying I, to keep. Everyone I was else trying dry. to get everyone else dry, so I like was holding out my jacket, but I think I just got in the way, and so it was like it was not a great time. And I mean, like the rest of the evening was lovely, but I remembered like we came back after the wedding weekend, and my jacket was still drying. Um, no one's, I'm sorry, I'm listening to everything that you're saying, but the second you said that there was, like, possibly inter-family squabbles being resolved on the tennis court, <laughs> all I can think of now is that for some reason you're having to stand up for Sarah, and so when you're going out onto the tennis court, you've got on a purple cap and a fake mustache, <laughs> and looking, looking like Waluigi going, wah! <laughs> 
I mean, Greg, like, I know that we have never uh, met in person before, but, like, my limbs certainly have the dimensions down. Like, I just had to, like, squat and have everything at, like, right angles, and I've got it down pat. How how tall are you, Toby? Just out of curiosity, because I've never actually well, seen Tab- you in person. Toby, believe it or not, is the shortest brother of the, the three. Wow, yet he's okay. still six foot three. Oh my god. Yes. So uh, at this at this point, like one way or another, whether it's Mario and Luigi or <laughs> Wario and Waluigi, we could absolutely do a <laughs> A cosplay together. Uh, At five eight, I am definitely shorter than you. <laughs> well, Greg, when you see some of the photos, mm-hmm. you will know straight away who is on Toby's side of the family <laughs> and who is on my side of the family. My mum is a tall woman, but she looks short uh, next to us. Uh, so I'm six three. My oldest brother Hugo is uh, six foot seven. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I know. Wow. I have to really crouch in order to speak into the microphone when we're recording these <laughs> shows, uh, dear listeners. <laughs> By the way, hi, uh, Sarah. This is your debut on yes. Through the Window. So tell me about your insights of the many books which you absolutely uh, have read. Oh, and God, have, don't put And haven't on. actually just heard me ramble I, about them. I think I know a lot about um, the what. Oh, dear. Now I think I know all of it. <laughs> it's okay. You're just being recorded. The, 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 the author is listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> the one that's like a gothic horror. Ah. You mean let them go and yes, or secret them, rooms? Let, let them, yeah, that's let the them go. The <laughs> I, I remember telling you a lot about that yeah. as that book was coming out. So you, like, if I was to say, oh, now, damn, now I'm blanking on the names. <laughs> ah, now the foot's on the other shoe. Um, it's not Abigail. Uh, no, no, no. Rebecca and Amanda. Sarah thought of it first. Sarah thought of Rebecca's name first. We're out of a job, Greg. Sarah, like you, you can be the new host. You can talk to Apple about it. He's been on the show before. He's fine. Yeah, he's a talkative chap. No, no, no. Because we're already talking about Mario Tennis. Now, all of a sudden, I'm imagining. Okay, so what if Peach? was dressed up like Rebecca because she was already using a shotgun in Mario versus Rabbids. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> but like, so I didn't even get to the point of me bringing up like tennis and all of that. So there is a picture and we have it one. We'll send it to you. It'll probably be on the show notes for this. It is already on the show notes. It is of Sarah on the tennis court in her wedding dress serving a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like so we weren't ever really going to be playing like a full game of this but like we just thought you know the tennis court is right there let's get some like literal shots yeah. in and uh yeah but the short version uh which it, this now no longer is is that it was a perfect day and i married the best person <laughs> My little donut. <laughs> yes, I am. I am a donut. This is you heard it here first. I am a sentient six foot three donut 
who managed to get several copies of a alternate history series, thought they were pretty good, and managed to form sentences and go get into a committed uh, multiple year long relationship and uh, propose to uh, them. I ramble. This is this is you're seeing it like front stage. It is not all meticulous notes and preparation and scripting and all of that. It is me fumbling, forgetting <laughs> character names, and Greg filling in those gaps later. Well, that's the perfect team, right? It's the perfect team. It's me who's forgetful and someone who is like actually can call me on my shenanigans. <laughs> so here's the most important question mm -hmm. was apple the flower girl <laughs> i so wanted that to happen it was on the drawing board the more times than i can count i was nervous if he would escape into the chat yes and then you said the rest oh, of the wedding would have been spent looking for him. That is so, exactly no, what Sadly not. So I so we had some ducks that came. Yeah, and there, they, there was genuinely a moment where Sarah was taking photos, and because like this is all at like a sort of harbour side area, it was just like three ducks that waddled up like near <laughs> Sarah's train and was going like it just quack quack and like a wonderful picture of you yeah, uh, playing with you. them. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like, because, of course, like Sarah, the zoologist, <laughs> when I propose to her, there's like deer and antelope around. Oh, no. When we have our wedding, there's the, she is essentially like a Disney princess <laughs> in terms of like communicating with the animals. Oh. And if I annoy her enough, I've never gotten to this stage, but like I dread to think what will happen because it will just suddenly be every creature within a mile radius. Jumanji. Yeah, it'll be Jumanji. It'll be Jumanji. I mean, look on the bright side. At least the horrible goose from Untitled Goose Game didn't show up. Yeah. Trying to, grabbing your bridal train or stealing yeah. the rings from the best oh, man's pocket. Yeah, that would have that <laughs> would that have been such shenanigans. Oh no. <laughs> I know that I have uh, put you on the spot. No, I've enjoyed I, you're it. Enjoying Hello, it? everyone. <laughs> Hello, that is Sarah. That is, she exists. I'm not just crazy. There is an actual other person who lives in the flat, and I'm not just projecting, throwing my voice. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to ever come on the show if you ever talk about animals. I don't know much else, but. No, so, you know what? There is. We just, we just had a whole segment on manticores. Do you yeah. know anything about cryptozoology? Not really, but it would be kind of interesting to meet about. And you know what? If like there's ever a moment where like it becomes pivotal to the plot that like the electro reception and navigation. <laughs> I'm sure that of, will be like, that. aquatic creatures. <laughs> you you're the first person to call. Like the, oh oh, oh like, okay. Hold hold on a second. Hold on hold on hold on. Hold on. Toby rightly pointed out here minor content spoilers for Princess Thieves. So if you don't want any spoilers at all, jump forward about one minute. Yeah. Sarah. Oh dear. Do you like unicorns? I don't, I don't mind them. They're okay. They're not my favorite, like, <laughs> mythical creature. No, I'm just thinking to myself, just the idea if Sarah had <laughs> the princess thieves and then came on and had something to say about the one unicorn in that particular book. 
Yes, there is a talking oh. unicorn who is a bit of a prat. Like, isn't there a horse as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's a bedraggled horse most of the time, but he is secretly like a unicorn, <laughs> okay. with, like a wow. unicorn Pegasus that can like fly and is majestic, but still is a sarcastic like mm. sort of black adder style like prat. <laughs> like, interesting, interesting yes. combination. Yeah. <laughs> If, if you wanted a phrase to describe uh, new century, interesting, interesting combination. <laughs> that is that is the uh, blurb that you can just copy and paste and apply to most covers of this book. <laughs> uh. Meanwhile, Alex is listening to this and vibrating in his seat. Um. I know, I know people really hate the word interesting, so <laughs> that's, that was a good one for me to bring up. <laughs> Look, if considering this is your like 15, 20 minutes into your first podcast experience, I think you're doing splendidly. Thank you. <laughs> when we do do a zoology of New Century episode, mm. I'll, I'll definitely be up for reading about some of that in advance, and then I'll be able yeah. to give you I, be- I could, a better. I could <laughs> certainly compile a list of like chapters and things where they actually talk about because, like, one of the things about the world of Rama, mm. which is where Panther Soul and uh, Tiger's Eye mm. takes place, and uh, Tiger's Eye being the book that Maureen yes. is the main <laughs> character and amazing in. So, uh, like, just great. I'm not trying to get any kudos points there. I, I'm not trying to get any kudos points for our amazing friend Maureen. I, I'm, she's amazing. She knows this. It is known. Uh, but. <laughs> There, like the animals in that, there was a moment when we were recording the podcast where I assumed there was this particular animal name it was like a fictional creature, mm-hmm. but then I was corrected that it was actually mm-hmm. a like I think it's extinct or yes, the, the quagga. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well there you go. Like I, I should have run that past you because I was like. <laughs> Kraga. Oh, that just sounds like a good, like, sort of fantasy <laughs> creature name. And then, lo and behold, because, like, the point of that world is mm. that because all of these are meant to be somewhat, like, mm. sort of parent one another, mm. but it's still alien. Mm. And the idea is that this is just a world where, like, nature, like, didn't get, mm. like, stamped down on, but is now at risk of being stamped down on. Interesting. Mm. Also, they have ibex in the jungle, and if you know anything about ibex, I'm sure you yeah. think that that's ridiculous. Yeah, um, that's weird, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've wished that you guys get on with your like your, your the professional end of things, but I have professionals. Enjoyed, I have enjoyed being a little guest on here, so thank yeah. you very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. And uh, I will like, go. Re- I'll go really far uh, away to Sarah, the other side of the room now. <laughs> well, Sarah, before you go, is there any upcoming piece of work that you would like to, <laughs> or previous work that you've done that pe- fans of yours, of which there are, now there are dozens, <laughs> dozens, I say. Which you would like to point people towards? Are you talking about my thesis? I am talking about your thesis. <laughs> or wow. honestly, like any, like if you've ever written anything that might be intrigued, because goodness knows there are lots of people out there that are always interested in learning things they didn't before. Me, I'm talking about me mostly here, but like, you know, it's just if you've put stuff out there that yeah. would be an opportunity for me to learn more about stuff I did not know. I, you you ended up, I think, telling me stuff about 
marine life during that one conversation we all yeah. had with yeah. uh, Maureen that I didn't know about. So, yeah. No, I mean, I've worked on loads of things. I worked on, like, butterflies when I first met Toby, and I did a small oh. article for a, a magazine about that, and tadpoles, bumblebees, now it's been fish. So, yeah, definitely there's been a bunch of animals. A like, wide range. A wide yeah. range. So, yeah. yeah, I can definitely get um, dig some of the things out. I'm hoping that once... The, the thesis is out six mm. years in the making I, that I can we'll have some of that published. I'll definitely uh, forward some links or something that mm. can be included in the show notes. But uh, that, I can also think of well, one uh, appearance you had on a BBC documentary <laughs> yeah. uh, where you were interviewed for your. That's right. I remember you say, saying talk. something about this. And then I couldn't watch the bloody thing because I can't get access to the BBC. Actually, Greg, I can totally send it to you on like it's on Google Drive and my Google Drive. So oh, excellent then. Yeah. That because mm. yeah, that. Yeah. I wasn't didn't come out to complete fall out of that. No, but... you, you looked amazing at that, <laughs> and like not just looked that's uh, so superficial. Like God, you uh, delivered yeah. a very insightful analysis of like not even the main fish that you study as part no. of your thesis. These are. Uh, Garnet and Amethyst, yes, they're named after the Crystal Gems. Uh, <laughs> and they are black ghost knifefish who are huge now. They're yeah, huge. they're so huge. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, we can totally. They, that documentary, if for any listeners who are curious, it's called Secrets of Skin. And it's it's not a salacious, like, romantic novel series. It is a fascinating, uh, and we don't judge. We're just, like, we want to be accurate here. So Secrets of Skin was this uh, documentary series specifically about different types of, like, skin in different animals mm. and how they, like, are adapted to different things. And your fish, the idea behind that, was... it was that, like, the skin is actually part of, like, the way that they, like, will be able to receive information yeah so i was talking about electrocommunication where they use electric signals to communicate with one another which is something that's really cool but isn't actually what i study so it was something that i had to yeah, actually is, just on your off your off hours you're also an expert on this <laughs> See, I needed to inject this uh, feeling of positivity because this is the episode where we talk about the death of Carl. And oh, yeah, okay, that's fair. Yes, that's true. Like, I have written into my show notes that I will solve it at one point, and that feels like a promise that I can deliver on. This is the longest that I haven't uh, spoken with my wife since we got married, so I believe <laughs> I will. And I'm still getting used to that. There was a moment when, during the wedding, when, like, Sarah like, and I had just been, like, split off to talk with different people. And we knew that, like, oh, it's, like, time for the, the main meal. And I was just looking for Sarah and something that rolled off the tongue before I could really realise what like I was saying, but that it was already the natural responses. I'm just looking for my wife. And that was that <laughs> moment of like, oh, it's real. It's real. <laughs> I mean, different circumstances, but yeah, I, uh, I don't remember. Oh yes. Uh, there, there was another very true moment that I brought up with in, our show on Free Guy, which is the climax of 
when Harry met Sally. I was discussing right. the idea of a character in the movie's love of someone else to be very much Billy Crystal at the end of that movie, as opposed to at any other point during that movie. Uh, and so, you know, there's a reason why the really good rom-coms out there or just the really good movies in general, not just romantic comedies. Romantic comedies is hard to find it sometimes because there are so many bad romantic comedies out there. But the mm -hmm. really good ones provide us with those moments that actually do resonate. Come when on. Harry Met Sally is one of them, Jerry Maguire is one of them. There's an, a few others that just have one of those moments that really rings true. So, yes, well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sorry, uh, I don't I don't mean to steal you away from your wife, but you know, not at all, not you do you do need been... yeah, but you do but we 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 need to refill this mm, up. It's absolutely. been a while again, it's, and yeah, uh, uh, it will be decidedly less of a while till the next one. Uh, well, I can assure you of that we shall be reopening this window very soon. Don't uh, don't lock it too tight. We're sort of stepping on tiptoes with uh, schedules at the moment mm. because earlier this week we were just like drawing together the plan for the last like seven or six weeks before Sarah hands in her thesis, and I'm mm -hmm. running. I'm I am being the Carl on that. I am being her <laughs> lancer on this, yeah. and uh, I'm very excited about it. And you'd be a horrible lancer. You don't swear. You don't, you don't, you don't get in people's face. Getting in your wife's face, I, Maureen could get in my face if mm. she felt that she needed to, but she wouldn't be like Carl. You know, you know who I am in this situation. I'm Scorpio. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. Hugs, hugs, very hugs. important. Mm. 